I would like to make the point, at no time in my life has burrito number two ever been a good idea. <laughs> Not a single time in my life have I ever been like, you know what I need? Another three and a half pounds of shredded meat into my system. <laughs> Welcome, friends and well-wishers, to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the podcast for lifelong friends, and uh, we'll, 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 we'll keep it kind. We'll stop there. We're lifelong friends. <laughs> Review records off Robert Dimery's 1001 albums you must listen to before you die. This week, we're going to be reviewing uh, a different one. I, I think... Uh, well, well, let's review the cast first. So, with us this week, we have. I am Tom. We got Tom. And who else do we have over there? And uh, this is Adam. Very excited to be here. Nice. By the way, and Phil, I like how you did not welcome our haters to the podcast, just our well wishers. Right. I think the haters probably out- outnumber the well wishers. Sure, sure. Yeah, fair. We talk about the importance of hate listening, so we welcome all of the hate listeners. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a big umbrella here at the 1001. Yeah. And I don't think we're going to make any friends today. Today, <laughs> we're going to be diving into the Flying Burrito <laughs> Brothers, the Gilded Palace of Sin. Uh, and I think in general, this is just a very hip sound right now. I don't know what it's like on the West Coast these days, Tom, but this this sort of jangly West Coast country is definitely rearing its head in a prominent way in the greater Philadelphia area. So well, here it is. Yeah, I'm absolutely. A, I'm going to cancel my plans to spend the summer in Delaware then. Jesus Christ. <laughs> It just tells you how unplugged in I am, Phil. Mm. Uh, where are mm. you detecting this sound? Mm. Is it amongst I, well, the, yeah, uh, yeah, there, the local band, like the local music scene? In, yeah, in absolutely. Kinda... I think there's some bands on the, the Philly scene in, in, in particular. There's a band called Squawk Brothers. Um, there's a band called Cosmic Guilt. Uh, who, yeah, I mean, they sing very Flying Burrito Brothers, the Birds-esque oh, okay. style harmony. It's hmm. uh, it's definitely more like Miller High Life than it is real champagne, you know. Like it's uh, definitely like yes. a a real like smoky bar room sound than it is okay. like you know high gloss twenty twenty plus country, you know. Yes, all right. You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. The the country that only has one harmony. I'm talking yeah. about the, the modern country, everything mm-hmm. is just that one harmony. They have a button. Yeah, man. man. Let's stay, try to stay on track this week with the Gilded Palace of Sin. Um, for those of you who have maybe not listened to it before, you know, hope you've, hope you've checked it out. What were the initial impressions? What did you guys think, Tom? <sighs> okay, uh, I'll give my tweet-length review here. Yeah, yeah, give us the tweet-length review. It's, it's, it's got a little stark on it, which is uh, the Flying Burrito <laughs> Brothers, just with their name, beg you not to take them seriously, and I was happy to oblige. <laughs> Mine's a little longer. All right. So here's here's my review. This week I was hoping to make a reference to a burrito in that it's full of delicious flavors and different textures all crammed into a small package. But instead, I'm reminded of Hot Pockets, the watered-down and microwavable version of a burrito. And while some Hot Pockets give me crippling gas and explosive diarrhea, at least they make me feel something. 
Ooh. With that said, I'm hoping to hear why I may be wrong. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I, you know, I didn't feel quite as explosive <laughs> about it, then, but, <laughs> but yeah, it was a bit of a snooze. Uh, I, I would tend to agree. In my mind, I, I feel like this was uh, a much, much better much better version of a Steve Earle record I didn't like very much. <laughs> so I kept I kept going back to Steve Earle in that it felt yeah. like a chore every time I'd have to sit down and listen to the album or the focus list. I was like, oh God. Hey little mama, won't you come on with me? Anyway. You know, and it's really interesting. I, I, and I think I, I want to get into the history of the band a little bit before we dive into the record because I think that's a really important part of it, right? Sure. I think the history and the impact of the Flying Burrito Brothers and the members of the band seems to be material. Where in you know maybe this record has some lack of material. I'd say it's certainly it's certainly outsized influence for the product that I am seeing. Is this sure, is their sure. influential album? Like, yeah, really. Well, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, listening to the record, I could hear everything from the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead and Eagles and. Uh, Definitely you a lot know, of Eagles, whole, yeah. And that whole Tex-Mex thing. But I could also hear more modern bands, right? Um, like, I, I could hear the influence on bands like Dr. Dog and the way the harmonies are arranged and the way some of the, the chord changes. Very traditional sort of American songwriting changes. I, I had the feeling on this album, and I was trying to place it in a chronological context here, that this is 1969. And... When we think of country, we think of modern country, and then we kind of think of like 70s country, but there was like country was so dominant in like the 40s and totally. 50s, which is not that far removed. So, this is the equivalent of people in 1999 doing like a 1985 synth throwback sound. Right. It's not new, it's, it's throwback, not, right? It's so I can't. I couldn't view this as like breaking significant ground as I, I can see where it influenced other bands who did it much better. But I feel like all that they did was they create, they did the crate diving before these other bands would have done the crate diving. Right. So it's not like the Eagles mm. never would have been around if it wasn't for the sound for them doing this sound. It's just like the Eagles probably liked them. But I'm sure they were more influenced by, you know, Chet Atkins and like, uh, you know, like Buck Owens and those guys from the 50s and 60s or the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Adam, Adam what do you got on this? Are you? Uh, I'm kind of falling in line with Tom, too. I saw references that these guys, again, they influenced, you know, Poco and the Eagles. Poco? Uh, yeah. I, the, Poco has one or two albums that I'm, I, I really like. But I, the, yeah, this would have been done regardless. And you look at the contemporaries. That were out there. I mean, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, that debut album came out in 69. Uh, there's a handful of others. I think Neil Young and Crazy Horse, mm-hmm. right? So that Cinnamon Girl came out in 69 as well, right? So you're, you're kind of playing in that pseudo-country-ish southern fried rock sound. So I don't feel like this was a... Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. <laughs> All right, cool. Great, great point, Adam. So before we jump into history... Let's jump into the first tune on the record. Let's let's give a little listen to what we're talking about on the initial release from the Flying Burrito Brothers, The Gilded Palace of Sin. This is Christine's tune. Sometimes I'm 
cool. So what are you guys' initial thoughts? There's got shades of Mrs. Robinson, right? <laughs> shades of, you know, Simon Garfunkel until the vocals come in. Right. I mean, I will I will make this comment many, many, many times throughout there, but they do know that you don't have the hard pan the vocals to both to either side right they know that you can have them be right in the middle every freaking song somebody super glued the knobs it wasn't until like the third or fourth song where i was confident i was hearing something down the middle that i was like oh this isn't like some weird dual mono mix right like for sure tom for sure yeah (laughs) it's like somewhere around song four or five you hear something you're like there's that's a that's one vocal in the middle there it is Look at that. <laughs> for a first, now I don't know the rest of their catalog. For a first song, first album, it might be a good representation of what I thought they would have presented in the rest of the album. Uh, but it felt like it was a pretty early high water mark for, sure. for this album. And I'm not sure about the rest of their career, but they're at least getting the sound. Like I definitely got their vibe, got their sound from this first track. So I appreciated that. Granted, I feel like, you know, the rest of the album doesn't represent the energy of this first you, you song. Don't, you don't really need 34 minutes of it. All <laughs> so I will say this. I was surprised to learn that Graham Parsons was in this band because I actually kind of like the one Graham Parsons album that I have, that album GP. I think that's a pretty good album. And I think that album is laden with pathos. And I think it is laden with like good quality songwriting. And I didn't really get a lot of uh, genuineness out of this. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that like Graham Parsons got a much more serious drug problem, like was developing a much more serious drug problem over this time. And he had a little bit more, uh, and I say skid marks on the road of life to talk about, but ah, um, yes, he was developing his life story at this point. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. So, so, that, so that's a great segue, right? To the sort of the, the life and times of the band. Tom, as you, as you mentioned, Graham Parsons is essentially the front man of this band, right? And I think to really understand the Burrito Brothers, you got to understand the birds. So the Flying Burrito Brothers, in many ways, are a two-man band, right? They're Graham Parsons uh, and Chris Hillman, uh, who are, are really the mainstays in the group. There are other members who will be in and out of the group for longer and shorter periods of time. In many ways, this resembles a previous band that Graham Parsons was in, fronted by Roger McGuinn, which was The Birds. So this is where I think there is an obvious sort of overlap between this sound and the David Crosby, Crosby, Stills, and Nash sound, right? A sort of divergence from where this West Coast... American songwriting, country-infused thing would go, Adam, sort of in the direction that you're talking. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Neil Young, even the Grateful Dead, right? Mm -hmm. And then the Flying Burrito Brothers, which is something I think you also hear shades of in the Grateful Dead. Certainly, I would say very a much better executed version of in Eagles. Um, Right. right. But, you know, you you get a more legit Tex-Mex. Weren't the Birds one of those bands that had like just a carousel of people yeah, in and out totally, of them all the time? Totally. So the Birds uh, got together in like '63 or '64. They're like an early California, early West Coast psychedelia band, right? 
Roger McGuinn is leading the show, and yeah, they have a huge cast of characters over the years. It includes David Crosby, Chris Hillman, and Graham Parsons, who oh, wow. would be Crosby in Burrito Brothers, okay. and Gene yep. Parsons, who I must be related to Graham Parsons in some way. Just seems unlikely. The, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know what other you know famous people move through the birds. But yeah, the birds would play from like 63, 64, up until about 70, uh, at some point, you know, McGuinn just doesn't want to tour anymore. Um, you know, the birds put out those hits like Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn. The one I think of that I think I see is like the the fork in the road, right? Between birds, you know, one way being Crosby, Stills, and Nash and the other way being Flying Burrito Brothers is Eight Miles High, right? Which has this jangy, psych- jangly psychedelia, elements of which you'll hear in both Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Flying Burrito Brothers. a really different take on it same thing with the vocal harmony right just goes in a really different direction for the burrito brothers uh as compared to crosby stills nash so i will say this maybe to preface some of the comments i will make about this album the birds mr tambourine man and turn 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 their big songs eight miles high I, i believe they wrote that but they basically had at least two of their three big hits were songs that were written by somebody else. Yeah, sure. And Who wrote Turn, Turn, Turn? Turn, Turn, Turn was written by Pete Seeger. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It just seems like it carried through a bit on this album where there were two songs that I liked, but I also was like, oh, there's already definitive versions of this song that had been recorded by other people, and yes. they're the two best songs on the album. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's let's keep moving along. Let's let's dig into the next song. We got to get farther in. We got to do like an actual dive on Christine's tune, because you know I can't <laughs> let this one go past, because they do my favorite thing, which is they fucking name names. Which I respect that very what much. What do they do? They name names. They're oh, like, this yeah. is about a terrible woman. Her name is Christine. Her social security number is two six four eight five. Her blood type is. Yeah. <laughs> I I really I dig that. I think that art should be um, not super uh, obtuse or oblique. I think that you know, go ahead and fucking name names. This but that's what you got to do, right? That's what you got to do. That's that's gonna give me that's gonna give me more impact for it. I think that the pedal steel on this album, I really wanted it to be more of a mission statement for the rest of the album than I think it ended up being. But I thought it like the chicken picking pedal steel was really. I cool. think so, I think so. That yeah. guy's name, yep. this guy, this guy has a classic nickname. So this guy's name is Sneaky Pete Kleino or Klein Kleinow. <laughs> I don't know. Sneaky, Sneaky Pete. Pete. Sneaky right. Pete. Is who he is. Yeah. All right. Doesn't, right. doesn't right. have a last name. I'm sure the other yeah, the people in the band are probably like, what's his, I don't know, his last name's Pete. His he first has name's Sneaky. Come on, Sneaky man. Pete. So he actually had an element of his style. Uh I obviously stumbled upon this uh as I was digging this up. So I don't really know. I you know, as I was digging into the record, I don't know anything about pedal steel. But apparently Sneaky Pete had a stylistic detail where he tuned his pedal steel down to a half step specifically so it would be sort of like tuned up around a dominant chord. I don't understand. But basically his whole sound is apparently a uh, 
It's like a fuck you to mainstream country. Uh, and it's more of like... To a, mainstream pedal steel. To mainstream yeah. pedal steel. And it's more of like... he's a he, big he, pedal steel yeah, industry. Yeah, 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 exactly. Big pedal steel. It's like, it's a real, yeah, real. Trying to hold you yeah, down. Yeah, exactly. Fake he was news. playing... The, the more the way that pedal steel would be used in like a jazz or a swing group at the time, which oh, I can't even really place. I can't. Yeah. Pedal steel in jazz. Yeah. yeah I, don't, I guess maybe it's some of the, there are some big band settings, right? Where like, you know, there's just those. I'm thinking of like a slow song. I like, you know, my. Uh, oh, my funny Valentine. Yeah, funny, my funny Valentine. Valentine yeah. yeah. I was I was like it's not my bloody Valentine. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Fantastic movie. Yeah. Well, isn't it also an emo band? <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. Ba- yes. Yeah. Well done. But, but speaking of speaking of band names for a second, can we touch on the fact uh, that number one, this band name is stupid. It is just a <laughs> dumb band name. But they also like had to like get it from somebody else because there was the Fra- Flying Burrito Brothers East. Uh, that existed first and then they were like well we're not going to really do it anymore so you can have our name it's not like your band name's like The Cure or something like that where if you're like <laughs> ah, you know good. I'm not really going to be in the band called The Cure anymore we really do anything like, you can have that name I'd be like totally I'll take that name it's one of the best band names of all time right. uh, but uh, you'd be like oh no you can have my band name The Flying Burrito Brothers I'm like oh I think I'm going to come up with anything else anything, anything else. else would be better than this well, so the East and West part of the Burrito Brothers is more about the birds and the members. It's really about the terrible lack of synergy between these bands, right? And how the members of the birds would be thrown out of the birds uh, uh, and or, uh, you know, quit the birds due to disagreements with Roger McGuinn and or Graham Parsons. And then uh, inevitably Graham Parsons would leave the birds. Some of those members would join Burrito Brothers with Graham Parsons only to quit or be thrown out by Graham Parsons. It would, oh, yeah. it would you... all come together into what we know now is Flying Burrito Brothers. There are so many, like, later members on their Wikipedia page, they have like the classic era and then oh, like yeah, the later yeah. members. There's like classic 24 era. later members of the band or something like that. Jeez. Do I, they have the Gantt chart like uh, they do. Uh, Iron Maiden had? Yeah. They, they like have the Gantt chart. members and over 30 years. The Gantt chart. Like over, you know, for all intents oh, and purposes, funny. I mean, the band that we're talking about tonight was active from 68 or 69 until 72. Right. After 72, it's, it's, a, it's a product that's being sort of bought and so uh, I, I don't actually I don't know the history of the band after that I feel like I know the history of 70s rock and roll enough to know that like if you got a name yeah. that people will come see because it's got something attached to it you know you right. can sell some concert tickets because um <laughs> Graham Parsons died in 73 Graham Parsons is did like- die very young and many other members of the band uh would die in the early 90s they, a, a lot of the overlapping members with the birds uh, mm-hmm. Sort of around the time of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. How do you, so Parsons died in seventy three. Was that drugs? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so he died in Joshua Tree, mm-hmm. and apparently he had like gone out and like there's just a litany of like competitive drinking that went on earlier in the night. Where he's like he bet somebody to drink six shots of tequila with them, and then he had fourteen beers, and then he smoked a bunch of weed, and then he had. Then apparently somebody else bought some uh, some morphine from somebody. Mm, Jesus, and, oh, that was a good move. 
Probably. Yeah, the official cause of death was an overdose of morphine and alcohol. But wow. in in his Wikipedia page, they talked about how he was like overdosing, and the woman was like, "Oh no, I got it. I'll snap him out of it with an ice cube enema." Mm, Apparently, yes. shoved a bunch of ice up his ass and oh was my. like, "This will shock him back into like uh, into coherence." And it uh, did, yeah, did not work. It sounds like one of those things where they're like, so they gave him an ice cube suppository and a cold shower, put him in a bed, went out to get him some coffee, and then they were like, ah, oh, we're going to try some CPR. And then after that, they're like, uh, you know, maybe we should call an ambulance. This is, this has to be like the, the like events that led up to- hours later? Yeah, we're like, hours later. Oh, my God. Like, and he was not. Old. He died in seventy three, and he was born in forty six. He was twenty six years old. Twenty six years old. Well, I mean, this all tracks because the Flying Burrito Brothers, and and we can jump back into the record in a second. But the Flying Burrito Brothers rejected a offer to play Woodstock because Graham Parsons had a terrible fear of flying and didn't want to fly from California to New York for the gig, opting instead to do that train tour across Canada and like the northern part of America there's a uh, there's a, there's a documentary called Festival Express about it super cool documentary about like the band and Grateful Dead and like Buddy Guy Flying Burrito Brothers living on a train that's driving across Canada and, and you know playing parts of like you know Boise Saskatoon you know, and stuff. yeah exactly <laughs> right. it's super cool but apparently this was uh, Janis Joplin's there Apparently, this was not good on the people on the train, though. It was just like a 24-hour party of party hard drugs and alcohol nonsense. across Canada for seven weeks. Um, oh Graham Parsons was one of the sort of, uh, I, you know, the, the casualties of this. Um, and after that tour, it was apparently just a mess. Um, and, you know, had to had to take some time off from the band before they would move on to recording their next record. You know, uh, well, not funny. take their time off in the band, really, just like take some time off, but probably never got back to it. It's funny you mentioned the fear of flying because I heard that one of the reasons that he, or I read that one of the reasons he got kicked out of the birds was that they were supposed to play South Africa. Yes. And he refused to go because he was like, I don't agree with apartheid, so I'm not going to South Africa, which fucking A, yes, you should not agree with apartheid. That shit's fucked up. But. Other members of the band were like, oh, no, wait, you just befriended Mick Jagger and Keith Richards in England that where you were. I think you just want to hang out there and do a bunch of drugs with them. But maybe it was uh, I am paralyzed with fear okay, of flying because right. that flight. This is something I've never been to South Africa, but I was talking to Rob about this. And he's like, the thing that you don't realize is that, like, you fly to Paris and then you fly like. 14 or 18 hours south to get to South Africa. It's like the other side of the freaking globe. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right, right. Down the face. That makes sense. Wow. Right. You think of it, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, it's like you're the East Coast. So it's not that. You just go right over there. Yeah. Like, no, that's like more than most of humanity had ever traveled in their entire lives up until like the 1950s. Right. Yeah. All right. Let's, 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 let's. Let's get another song here, right? Let's let's All jump right. into Sin City, let's right? Because I, I, you know, I honestly we're we're gonna get into the shit real quick here. So, right, let's let's get through these listenable tunes <laughs> and start having some fun. This is Sin City by the Flying Burrito Brothers. 
All right, so this song is a well-written song. It's a well-constructed song. It's paced well. The fact that they split the vocals, the two vocalists, and hard pan them to one side or the other makes it lack all cohesion on the harmony. It That's does really an interesting not point. Gel. I was trying to figure out why everything you said. It's like, yes, on paper, this should be a really good song. And yeah. then you listen to it and you're like, ah, there's something wrong. Why don't there. I like this? Well, I think a big part of the reason is that when you have a hard pan right and a hard pan left separate vocalists, any variance in their harmony, any note variance immediately becomes apparent. Where you're like, oh, you're a little bit off on that. And like it just makes it all of a sudden it just ungels. It's like it's like a you know, you're trying to make like a salad dressing, it just breaks all of a sudden and like reseparates right. out into the two components. It really did not do it any favors. If they had right down the middle mixed both of these together and you had it coming, you know, like center orally in your uh, perception, it would have worked so much better. I think back to the same technique used on Space Oddity. That works insanely well. Number one, because it's David Bowie and he's hitting the notes perfectly. But number Mm -hmm. two, because it's two David Bowies. Yes. And so they are going to gel no matter what. And so it gives you an opportunity to tell, oh, that's this David Bowie versus that David Bowie. But these two, they just sounded like two separate guys singing in a room as and like almost like they were singing different things, even though they weren't. But like it just never came together for me. And it really got to me because I was like, I want to love this song so much. It's kind of right up my alley. So this song immediately gave me, like literally on first listen, I immediately thought of the Rolling Stones and this sort of like Mm -hmm. Rolling Stones country sound. It made me immediately think of the girl with faraway eyes, Mm. which is sort of like a buried Rolling Stones like B-side, right? And I definitely thought like, oh, I definitely see the influence on the Stones. And interestingly, like this record in general, it's like, again, like everyone from the Rolling Stones to, I don't know, running on empty. What's his name? Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown. Like, yeah, it's like you hear the influence everywhere. But at the same time, it's like, is this a, uh, you know, is this like an Alan Parsons situation? Like, should he have stayed behind the the mixing board, you know, like, is he on the wrong side of the microphone? I'm not bothered as much by the hard pan, Tom. It's definitely like, it's as hard as it gets. It's, it's not, no one would say, Oh, I didn't notice that. Right. Uh, but I'm, I, in, in our many podcasts and our many record listenings over the last year or so, I've just been really, I'm just so impressed with how brave, mixers sound designers or whatever the shit you want to call them were in this era they're just like oh yeah i'll just hard pan the vocals and i'll put the hi-hat on the left with one of the vocals right. who cares just right. all right. of it and then the rest of the drums will be on the other side and like i'll just yeah, beat it yeah is that brave or reckless you know like you could be like that guy sure. look how brave sure. that guy is he's driving 120 miles an hour down the freeway in well, traffic I, mean, I, I, I think there's a reason we don't do that anymore yeah. Like, so, you know, to that end, yeah, I don't disagree with you. I just am impressed with the bravery. I think a lot of the Beatles songs are mixed e- with equal bravery to great, you know, to better. What I will say about the Beatles songs, execute. though, is that it is not 
that they just found the one mixing style for the album and stuck sure. with it. And it is song it, specific. Right. No doubt. Am I the only one, just speaking of the engineering and the production and, and the mixing, that I don't want to say it felt disingenuous, but this album was made in 69. And as I was listening to it, I had to like sit down and think, it sounds like it was made in the early 60s, just with the quality of the recording and maybe the tinniness of the instruments, because same year, Chicago's first album came out. And that is big and beefy. Sure. This and sounds full and like around. It's, this it, almost feels like intentionally like low you, budget or something. Yeah, and yeah. like you can't be retro if retro was four years earlier. You know what? It just feels mm. like I, well, I, I don't know. I think it might have been like a half measure that they were trying to throw it back to the fifties, but they didn't want to go all the way back to fifties recording That's what you're technology. Saying earlier, right? They were just kinda like, uh, well, we'll just make it a little shittier, but not like all the way back in the day, like one mic in a room, Buck Owen style right. shit. You know? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It just feels yeah, it's it it's it's an odd choice to me and it kind of kept me from really getting into the album just knowing that it in it was in 69 and again as i look through whatever was the top 50 albums of 1969 you know there are all these really beefy great sounding albums sure you mentioned the disingenuous part i that speaks to me a lot this album it seemed to lack an emotional core to me that i felt should have been there and i don't know why it wasn't there it should have been there and i'll to this song specifically this song has lines that like really actually st- like spoke to me. I thought they were good, but there's just something about the way that it was presented that I did not like. I bet you if I saw this live, I probably would have liked it a lot. It probably right. would have sounded mm-hmm. better in a bar than yeah. it sounded in <laughs> yeah. my like you know my super modern headphones. You know, yeah. But there, yeah, there was something about it that just didn't do it for me. Although I will say, as a House poor San Francisco property owner. That line, uh, this old earthquake's gonna put me in the poor house. That one spoke to me definitely. I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, I can see that. I'll never financially recover right. from that. that that's great. Yeah. Thank you God. know, we're we're gonna talk about finances later in the oh, yeah, in the yeah, podcast. Yeah. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna talk about the uh, the shifting ways in in American. Uh, American. What's this song about? Because <laughs> I saw Sin City as the title. I was thinking Vegas, but mm-hmm. then it I wasn't sure if it was like they're talking about Los Angeles. And I was thinking like, oh, well, how, how many floors is the Capitol Record building? Because mm-hmm. they're talking about the 31st floor. I thought it was like an FU to the record industry. But then I was like, no, Capitol Records is only 13 floors. So I don't know <laughs> what the hell they're talking about. Well, you know, it's clearly I, the line, take it home right away. You got three years to pay, but Satan is waiting his turn. It's the devil's layaway plan. Of course. Right. <laughs> Damn it, he got me again. (laughs) Yeah, it seemed like, we've talked about this before, talking heads do it particularly well, where they put a bunch of nonsense lines out there, and they really make you feel them. Like, one of my favorite songs of all time that I have wept uncontrollably to is Naive Melody, This Mm -hmm. Must Be The Place, and David Byrne's like, I wrote that about a lamp. Yeah, it's just about about a lamp, you know? (laughs) But it's but they Shattering imbue all illusions. it. But they imbue it with a meaning and emotion, and this just didn't. It just didn't. Right. It, it didn't have that depth for me. The one note that I have on any of the performance on this is that the little syncopated drums over the chorus. He kind of does like he breaks into like almost like a double time little snare drum hit. 
on the chorus. Sure. Like, and yeah, it's yeah, cool. Really that's picks the, up that train beat. I mean, there's sensational the playing on the record, right? The drummer on this record is... I don't know if he's the same guy that's actually in the Birds. The Burrito Brothers would wind up picking the previous Birds drummers, their touring drummer, uh, from 68 to 72 because of, you know, the inability of other drummers maybe to, you know, play to Parsons' liking, potentially. Yeah, I was going to say, there's like as many drummers as a fucking Steely Dan album on this album here, <laughs> they do. which they is kind of ridiculous. Five drummers on this record. Like five when drummers on this record. To it. Yeah. Right. yeah. And he's like, yo, play a train beat with brushes. <laughs> yeah. Quiet. That's play it? it quieter. Right, right. <laughs> Again, I am not a good drummer, but if you were to be like, hey, Tom, we are going to cover the entirety of the Gilded Palace of Sin six weeks from now, and you need to be the drummer. I could one hundred percent be that drummer. Yeah, right. Not a, not a problem at all. I mean, I would work at it, but like, I'd not practice, a problem. You're right. You practice yeah. a bit. Yeah, you have to learn the songs. Yeah. Like right. You wouldn't quit your day job to practice it. No. You could just pull it a half hour a night. You'll be good. So let's let's keep this train all rolling right. for Tom's tribute set of Gilded Palace of Sin. <laughs> We're moving on to the dark end of the street. Hey, I have an idea. How about we do another song that's nearly all harmony from the start, and we'll cover it and do it worse than the original. Not only the original, there's two definitive versions of this song that both came out in 1967. There's the Percy Sledge version, and there's the James Carr version. And they both the James Carr was the one I listened to. It's awesome. That it slays. And one of the reasons it slays, it's about 10 to 15 beats per minute slower. Yeah. And it has a absolutely powerful singer delivering the, yeah. you know, emoting over the track. At the dark end of the street, that's where we always meet, hiding in shadows where we don't be. Say what you will about Grant Parsons is a good songwriter, and I don't especially in country, I don't need a good singer. I, I've been, like, ever since the Guitar Town episode, I've been obsessed with Towns Van Zant. I love Towns Van Zant. He does not have a good voice. He has a quirky voice. He has a very personable voice, but it's not a good mm-hmm. voice, objectively. But sure. he would know, I'm not going to do a song where I have to oh, do a yeah. soul, like, it's a soul song, this song. Yeah. And it kills as a soul song. Yeah, man, you got to know your lane before you try to. Yeah, th- yeah. Uh, so I didn't realize this came. This came out in '67. '67. That's when James yeah. Carr released this version. And there's been like 60 covers, well, like well-known covers over the last 30 years. I mean, everyone has taken their their shot at this. I I, I haven't listened to all of them by any means, but 
<laughs> this is definitely not a good one. No. So I made my, my note on this is that the bass player was trying to be a bit too midnight train to Georgia on this one. It's way too busy. And he should have like pulled it back to like, you know, just kind of a more slower, like boom, 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 boom. Yeah. He's like kind of all, he's like noodling. Because the, dr- the drums are not, are not, you know, that uh, Motowny kind of shuffle. Like it's, Definitely, yep. Very straight ahead, very vanilla. And you're right; the, the bass is a little out of place on this. Well, there, so you know, there's uh, there's elements of reviews, you know, from uh, from the era, you know, when this came out, and it talks about how this is merry and country and soul and you know, Motown. I, I don't really hear it, right? Yeah, there like, were. What they mean is, um, Ray Charles. Ray Charles marries country and soul in Motown. That's what they yes. mean. They mean right, Ray right. Charles, not this. <laughs> yeah, this is this is not that. Yes, this yeah. might be a this might be a soul song, right? Yeah, this might be a country drummer playing a slow backbeat, right. but not slow enough. The top <laughs> so this a very big difference. This gave me. We talked about this, I believe, all the way back on the Solomon Burke episode. The concept of the word cover was they were like, we have this really well-written song. Let's write a, let's record a version of it for the blacks. Let's record a version of it for the country fans. Let's record a version of it for the white fans. Let's record it, mm-hmm. like, by the way, country and white fans, a lot of overlap there. But you know what I mean? Like, they <laughs> cover were like- Cover your bases, Cover right? your like, bases. Yeah. This felt to me like they were like, people who are afraid to listen to black music could mm-hmm. listen to this version of it because it's a, just an objectively good song. And yeah, that that uh, maybe I am I'm freighting that with a lot of maybe modern emotion about how that the that thinking and how stupid that thinking is, but it turned me off a bit. But there's probably an element of it, you know, whether it, you know it's uh, how cynically or racially motivated it is by you know A and M Records, 1968. No doubt, there's probably they probably have their 1968 actuary table that said this is a good song and this is how we're going to sell it to these different markets right and this is how we're going to yeah, bring it to yeah. the the southwest market right yeah. like we're going to bring it to the west coast right I also, we can't reach i will give graham parsons credit i'm sure he was a huge fan of either the james carr or the percy sledge version of the song and was like yeah i'll totally i will totally do this but i bet you that it made it to the album because some a and r guy was like oh yeah no i could totally see how we could further monetize this song Again, I'm being maybe a little unkind to them, but it gave me that feel. Well, I mean, as far as popularity goes, right, if you want to look at it from that standpoint, this record was, I believe, their top or their second best selling record. And neither record did well. <laughs> um, yeah, let me Wait, find there are only here. two of them. And there, there's three. Um, and I think oh, okay, the second okay. one, Deluxe Burrito, is I actually think oh, more, <laughs> I think is, is a, like a live or like an outtakes. It's clearly called a super burrito. Come on. People. Yeah, right. sure. For sure. <laughs> they don't know anything with, about burritos. Yeah. With guacamole and crema. Come on. represent burritos? Like, this is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, so this record was their their second best-selling record it peaked the billboard top two it, it cracked the the top 200 at a, a raging 164 
The 1971 follow-up, The Flying Burrito Bros. Uh, Not to be (laughs) confused with the Mario Bros. Uh, Yeah. Or the sedentary Burrito Bros. (laughs) Flying Again would hit 138 on the Billboard charts, and it would have... Looking at the track list, no discernible, no discernible hits. Oh, they do get into Hot Burrito Three for us. So, mm. oh, Hot Burrito Three. Thank God they continued that saga. Yes, I was. Uh, I really wanted more. <laughs> Epic. Before we jump on to the next song, I, I again, I complained about the hard pan so much that I want to point out that on this song, panned left. On that, you and me on the dark end of the street. They include two voices on the left side that harmonize. And listen to the contrast when there's two voices together and how they sit together. We'll steal away to the dark end of the street. You and me. I don't think this one is panned quite as hard as no, the others it's panned pretty damn hard the thing that you're thinking about is this is I'm, I'm pretty sure the thing you're thinking about is the harmony that you and me on the yeah, dark end of left, the street yeah. it's a two-part but it's only left and so again it's like it, it feels not stitched together not stitched together and then all of a sudden you're like oh this is gelling a little bit more it's because there's two voices laid right on top of each other playing right in your left ear <laughs> giving you those little you know it, magical I, tingles it does something i don't know what it does for you guys but it does make my ear bounce from left to right in a bit of an odd way like i can't like settle in as a listener quite like again like it might be nice background music maybe it'd be different if i was listening to this on vinyl again like you're, you're listening to it it's, it's mixing in the air <laughs> but, yeah but. The, i did so that's a good point i didn't listen on speakers mm. all this week was uh, headphones. Yep. So that's that's interesting. Okay. But All still, right. it is it's an aggressive. It's an aggressive. Yeah. It's aggressive. It's aggressive. All right. Should we aggressively move on to uh, let's let's glide through Juanita here as we move on to the the burrito saga. I can recycle my line from the previous song. I have an idea. How about we do another song that's nearly all harmonies from the very start? <laughs> like, it's just... And again, it's a two-part right from the start. Come on, switch it up. Like, make 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 me earn the harmony. For sure. Like, this you, is the you know point I mean? in like, the record where, like, it really starts getting to you. You know, you've got Christine's tune, Sin City, Do Right Woman... Dark end of the street, Juanita. I don't know about Wheels and my uncle, but like, you you you've gotten hit over the head with this approach to <laughs> yeah, and a couple tempo, of times, right? Yeah. <laughs> Go back to the Beatles. John and Paul can harmonize like freaks, and even they are like, we shouldn't do this all the time. This would just right. get old, <laughs> right? <laughs> the entire time that 
I kept thinking of that song, Is Love a Red Dress? Uh, if Love's a Red Dress. If Love's a Red Dress, hang me in rags. It was from the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. It's where it got famous. Um, okay. It's got that. I was very annoyed by that because I was like, how dare you take another song from the 50s? But apparently that song was written in like the 90s. And I think it was written specifically for the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. So I had to pull back really? my hatred of that. Well done. Like, uh, but yeah. If Love's a Red Dress, great song. You should listen to that. I listened to it a couple times. I was like, this song fucking kills. The, the Flying Burrito Brothers, despite their terrible name and even maybe even questionable production choices on, on some of their questionable production choices on the record, like – they had a big influence, specifically, you know, Grant Parsons, whether it was with the birds or with the Flying Burrito Brothers or with his friendship to the Rolling Stones, right? Like it had, they had a material impact, even if, you know, this record is a bit of a snooze cruise. Tom, I forget which album we did recently, but we, we talked, and I think it might have been you specifically talked about, in retrospect, Everyone looks back on it and either says it's great or it had a huge influence and it, it was the reason this movement started. I can't remember the album, but I almost feel like there might be a little bit of that going on. Like there's there are some hipsters out there who look back on this album with maybe some rose-colored glasses and think like, oh, well, this in 40 years after the fact, this was a huge deal and it it impacted the following. I don't know, it just... Just get that vibe. Yeah, it's like just because I could be totally wrong. Just because like the Dead and the Eagles kind of sounded like this afterwards doesn't mean that it was because of the Flying Burrito Brothers. Because the right. Flying Burrito Brothers were in and of themselves taking a throwback sound and trying to sort of make it more modern. And these other <laughs> right. bands just did it better. And Adam, I can't remember what I, I throw a lot of jackass comments out there. I don't. Right. I try not to keep track of them. They're all good. My life works much better if I just like forget the things I said and move on, and I don't have to <laughs> wallow in my own stupidity. Um, <laughs> But that's, uh, that's a good policy, by the way. Yeah, it's a great policy. Yeah, Phil, I learned that from you. Yeah, <laughs> just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. You, do, you do want to keep going. Yes. My my other note on this song, besides the fact that I thought that it was that song, "If Love's a Red Dress," was that I was trying to think of like the biggest diss that I could throw out there, which is it sounds like a bunch of English guys doing a country song, which I, again, I know they're not English, but I was like, that's probably the biggest diss that I could say is like English guys doing country. That's about it. I I don't know. It just, for some reason, it doesn't ring true to me in a way that again, I feel like Graham Parsons, the one Graham Parsons album that I'm familiar with does actually ring pretty true. And I I found that to be. What record is that out of curiosity? You mentioned it earlier. It's GP. Okay. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that record. It's uh, he put it out in so it came out in '73, which I think is the year that he died. I think that's correct. Yeah. So it was his debut solo album, and I guess his debut and only, maybe not only solo album, but I think the rest of them were posthumous because it came out in it came out in January '73, and he died in let's see September. Here. He died in September 73. So he probably was touring on that album when he died. Ah, jeez. Yeah. Did Graham Parsons write the song Love Hurts? Love Hurts? I don't think so. I just I just looked up your record and it gave me, you know, the, Love the most popular Graham Parsons song on the internet is a version of Love, Love Hurts. I don't think that... Which seems appropriate. 
Uh, so love hurts the song you're thinking about. Love hurts. Yes. Love hurts. Yeah, yeah, that was written by Borlo Bryant, apparently. The Borlo Bryant. Uh, wow. All right. So <laughs> is it, it was apparently a songwriting duo, Felice Bryant and Deodorius Bordelo Bryant. Oh. Uh, yeah. So I did not know that. I didn't know that either. <laughs> I, this is, this, some quick typing into Wikipedia is telling me this right now. There is another, yeah, I believe there's another Graham Parsons song called Love Hurts on GP uh. that is, uh, it's a different song. Though. All right. So before you go listen to that, we've got to blast through what I was. Oh, just- shit. You know what? Phil, you are right. That is the Love Hurts. Yeah. That was later recorded by Nazareth. And yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. 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 It's totally the same song. Yeah. It's yeah. just right. very different than the yeah. Nazareth version. And so is Hot Burrito Part One. Bring it on. So the initial note of this, I Adam, I'm hoping you also got Velvet Underground vibes. I, I, there's something about the first few moments of this song before they get to the first major chord makes me feel like, you know, they're going to stomp me with shiny boots of leather and I'm going to like it. <laughs> oh, this is way too musical for oh, yeah. Velvet Underground. <laughs> this this sounds nice. The instruments are in key in time. This is way, way above Velvet Underground territory. Oh, for sure. I mean, this has chord changes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Many chord changes. <laughs> yeah. Which just goes to show you, as I remember, I, I, I talked a lot of shit on uh, John Cale, the viola player, and on um, Lou Reed, the guitar player, as being terrible at their instruments, which I will admit I was wrong that they were actually studied in their instruments, but I think it proved to me that heroin is a hell of a drug and it can make you terrible <laughs> at things they used to be good at. But apparently, you know, Graham Parsons was still able to pull it off with, uh, you know, his... Uh, he he didn't become terrible at the guitar when uh he, he, he did not. Yeah, he did not. But he had a morphine problem, and maybe it's a little different. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so I actually would say Hot Burrito One is probably my favorite track on the album. I've, I I a, like the it's chord a toss changes. up for me. Yeah. yeah, between one and two. I this song <laughs> he actually emotes when he sings. Yes. and it and it's, it, feels, it's it, feels, nice. it does feel mm. a little more. Like, like the pain feels me. a little, 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 little more like closer to the surface or something, right? Maybe because he doesn't have a beautiful voice, and it's that kind of, it's a little cracky, yeah. but it it works within the context of this tune because it's kind of a slowy. Well, it's almost like tone, Tom Petty, I, right? It's in that like Tom Petty zone, right? Where he's yeah. he's, he's a little more wobbly than that, but like, mm-hmm. yes, it's like he's he's not. But Tom Petty doesn't have a whole lot of like achingly emotional songs, and That's uh, true. I my note on this is that they're not strong enough singers to pull it off because they're not achingly they're not aching enough to be emotional and not powerful enough to belt. 
And yeah. so they kind of are like right in this middle area where I'm not quite getting if you could belt it like a soul singer, great. If you could have right. that sort of okay. aching yeah. again, not to not to keep throwing it back to Towns Van Zant, but Towns Van Zant has like a pathos to his voice. And I just didn't get that. Yeah, you know, like I, I didn't hate the song. My my third note on this is that this song grew on me. My second note on this is that the bass player is just too damn busy. Just slow down. He's playing so many notes in the song. He's just kind of noodling all over the place. Just slow down, man. <laughs> And he's doing this thing where, like, he kind of slides into notes. It's like, all this can be one note. Yeah. And he, like, there are times where you can tell that he is sliding into a note by mistake, not on purpose. Like, he clearly hit the wrong note and slid into the right one. And that's because he's trying to play on, like, almost the 16ths on every single freaking beat he's playing a note. And that made me wonder, like, did they track it live? Is that why they kept some of these kind of obvious errors in there? Is that like a whole like, you know, well, I don't know. I mean, this is definitely, enough? I mean, they definitely would have had budget. This would have been tracked at a- A&M in Hollywood. Like, oh. because these guys were of Bird's lineage, they definitely had a real record deal going into this. So uh, the comments about keeping a mistake or maybe sort of like low five for 1969 production choices. Those, those would be choices, right? And, and maybe again, like when did the Willie Nelson record that we covered a few weeks back come out? Was that 73? Yeah. I think 73 Um, or 75. 75. 75. So recall Adam. Yeah. Great. So you, you see how this is forming. You see this movement of this sort of like, Back to basics. Let's not overproduce. Let's honor the song. I do tend to agree, though. It just feels like it misses a little bit here. Well, uh, if we're going to compare it to Redhead, if we're going to compare it to Redhead is Stranger, Redhead is Stranger sounded like I was sitting in a room and Willie Nelson was playing to me. And he had his drummer in a corner and he had his organist in the other corner and his bass player was like sitting behind me. Like that felt very intimate. It, it felt intimate, exactly. Yeah. And this just it just didn't. Sure. It just didn't feel intimate. Tom, they take your favorite production technique on this song and they take the trem <laughs> guitar and they put it left and they take the jangly upright <laughs> piano and they put it right to put the vocal in the middle. And it is it's much more pleasing. It's much <laughs> more pleasing. It's so much more pleasing. Yes, it just yes. gels so much better. Yes, yes. It's it's just a little easier to hear the song when your ear isn't trying to decide what to listen to all the time. Yeah, burritos. <laughs> let's let's lean into this burrito number two. Yeah. Let's get through burrito this burrito part. All right. So after after you know burrito one, you know after one burrito, you've got to have two burritos. So let's move on to hot burrito two. Yes. It just couldn't be real, and we know it's wrong. 
I would like to make the point, at no time in my life has burrito number two ever been a good idea. <laughs> Not a single time in my life have I ever been like, you know what I need? Another three and a half pounds of shredded meat into my system. I, never in my life have I purchased two burritos for myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, as drunk as I've been purchasing burritos, I've never been like, you know what? Two carnitas burritos. That's what I need right now. Yes. The size of a newborn. That's what I need to put into my belly. I need right seven and a half pounds yes. of greasy food. Well, what? Maybe, maybe you know you want to eat until you physically cannot eat anymore, <laughs> and you know you can eat one burrito. So you go, you get a second one. Just even if it's only one and a half, I need two. Obviously, yeah. they're not going to sell you know me what? half a burrito every time I've bought a burrito like late night, waiting in that long line in the mission just for the you know. I actually, I, I remember one time I was waiting at uh, it was Taqueria Cancun. I was waiting in line to buy a burrito, and I watched a roach crawl up the wall above the grill and then fall into the grill, and I still bought a burrito because it was so oh damn good. <laughs> but even then, when I'm like, I'll totally eat this whole burrito, I am left with more burrito than I can eat every single time. And thank you, album, for delivering to me the feeling of my mid-20s in the mission late at night with more burrito than I could handle with hot burrito number two. You're bloated. You're upset. Yeah. You're questioning your life decisions after this song. Did anybody else get a Super Tramp vibe on this? Song? Oh, I got like a Carol King vibe or something. No, oh, I went blasphemy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, until I, I had uh, uh, Jackson Brown actually, Jackson which Brown. is I feel like it's a across the board there. That's kind of the same-ish vein. We're swimming in the same yeah. same uh, waters there. This has like the psych country guitar and you know Grant Parsons singing. But yeah, there's something about the piano immediately that made me think of, of Carol King uh, before the vocals come in. And it, again, it made me think like, oh, there's another example of somebody who like was behind the glass and then like came out from the songwriting side. And it was just really successful in her case. <laughs> and it's just in not her as, case. Yeah. yeah, in her case. Right. And this, it just doesn't feel as successful. It's not a bad record. Like, I want to be clear. I don't think it's a bad record. I just feel like this is more... 1969, Devendra Bonhart. Like this feels like background music to me mm. in most cases. Mm-hmm. I like I like Hot Burrito One more than Hot Burrito Two. Did I miss some connection between Sweet One and Sweet Two of Hot Burrito here? Is, are they somehow a contiguous story or something that I didn't? You know, I was digging around. I found this when I was reading up this week, but I couldn't find it uh, today as I was organizing. Yeah, there is some note here about how Hot Burrito One and Hot Burrito Two were like. Written in the same day, based on bass lines that the bass player had been sitting on since he was like a teenager. Mm. Uh, <laughs> they sound like bass lines written by a teenager. That. <laughs> that was definitely your complaint uh, of, of Hot Burrito 1. Yeah. Um, yeah. No yeah. restraint. It's just all like jackhammer and no no, no smooth flow. There was Hammond in this. I, oh, yeah, it may yeah, have been the first time Hammond appeared. And and it's got uh, the fuzz it, guitar, like it has a lot well, of the, cool and the fuzz guitar is on the is on the pedal steel, uh, which I thought was pedal cool. Steel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. He's noodling on the pedal steel, and he he has like a fuzz box on it, which which is pretty damn cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cool. I mean, it, yeah. it 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 sounds very cool. Like so it's, I, I, yeah, I, that's yeah. my positive note on this tune. Uh, you know what? My other my other note about what this reminded me of was uh, like Steve Winwood solo stuff. Sure. With the Hammond, yeah. I was like, this this got a little bit of like mid seventies like Steve Winwood. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Oh, you know what? The, now that you say that, the piano reminds me a bit of uh, the Low Spark of High Heel yeah. Boys. When it like comes into the yeah. either the pre-chorus or the bridge, it's got. I mean, obviously that tune was after this. I think. Yeah, that would have been after this. Because well, okay, no, because right. Winwood would have played in traffic at Woodstock. He'd have been like nine, right, or okay, whatever, right. something stupid. <laughs> and uh, and that and you know and this band would have refused to be there because right, right, you know they wanted to you know boost up or whatever. Yeah. Uh, all across Canada. <laughs> all across Canada. All right, so let's let's take it home. Let's take it home to the one we've all been waiting for. All five minutes of Little Hippie Boy. <laughs> Actually, sorry guys, sorry guys. I don't know why I added that little. I was that was some kind of Freudian slip. This was just called Hippie Boy. Hippie Boy. Not, not Little Drummer Boy. Not Little answer. Drummer Boy. <laughs> little Hippie Boy. But not Little Hippie Boy. Just no. It's shit. Right. Hippie Boy. <laughs> I was walking down the street the other day. A sight came before my eyes It was a little hippie boy I must have been twice his size His appearance typified his strange breed Gaudy clothes, long stringy hair hanging down I'd seen perhaps a thousand in my hurry trips to town As he walked beside me on down the block I noticed no unpleasing smell. He might have been on the weed or even LSD. But if he was, I couldn't tell. So we walked together that way through this neighborhood. Finally, he turned around to me and he, he said, Friend, you know we're a million miles apart. But you know something? We can enjoy the sunshine and the weather. So I guess this is some kind of morality tale. I didn't get it though. I'd like for a super talky delivery style. I didn't quite get what they were trying to say. Yeah. yeah. It, well, he says he he says the moral of the story at the end, which has nothing to do with the story he just told. Which is like, don't carry more than you can handle, or more than you can that eat. It? Don't carry more than more you can than, eat. Yeah. Yeah. So as I understood this story, the character, the 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 narrator is walking down the street. Right. He's walking yeah, down the street right. and he, he he sees a, a little hippie boy. Right. Who may be on the weed or LSD or something. And then they the weed. They become. They don't become friends, but they 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 have a conversation, a brief conversation that is started by the hippie boy, where he tells him that. As I understood, he is carrying the urn of a dead child. Uh, yeah. Oh, because there's a box under his arm. Yeah. By the way, I like Phil's retelling a lot better. I'm going if I edit this episode, I'm going to put the music under Phil retelling the story. It's going to be much more, much more compelling. Yeah. yeah I, well, that's that's about the part where I get lost because he says something about a kid getting a dollar to carry a package, and then it just gets really vague, right? Yeah. And then I so you are giving me this version of the story where like it's like the kid's been cremated and his ashes are in this package. I I don't know if I'm way off on this, but I sort of got the idea that like somehow he went to deliver a package of drugs, I assume. Yeah, yeah, sure. And then he delivered the package for a dollar, two more when he was supposed to come back, but he got lost on the way back. 
But he had delivered the package. So the only mm. thing left now is for him to collect his two more dollars. Mm. And instead, I got the impression that they like cut him up and put him into a box or something like that. Like <laughs> again, I could be completely off, but that was what I got from it mm. because it for again, for a plain spoken story, not a lot of narrative through line there. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys you guys watched uh, Arrested Development? Yes. Oh yes. Do you, do you know the, the the whole bit about the father teaching the kids moral lessons because he has a friend who only has one arm and like he puts them in these scenarios where the arm flies off and it terrifies yeah. the children and then the father jumps out and says and that's yeah. why you always close the refrigerator door and like there's a guy on the ground with blood flying everywhere that's what I felt like this song was where like the moral had no tie. Anything well, else. The quote unquote moral never carry more than you can eat. But are you saying I'm supposed to be a vagabond who just has like my lunch in my pocket and that's it? Is that is that what you're trying to get across to me, little hippie boy? Which by the way, also, he might be on the weed or LSD. A pretty judgy statement for avowed heroin addicts at this point. Like I'm sorry, morphine addicts, yes. So here is I mean, as we've said, there there are many confusing lack of through lines in the story, but one that really stuck out to me, sort of right around where you're talking about, Tom, right, is where the kid, like, you know, the kid presumably dies, right, after he's gotten lost in the crowd, and then it sort of, like, spins back to, like, you're you're with him now, and he's like, yeah, you know, and, like, yeah, like, the kid's dead, and then you've got this dollar, and you take it to the bank, and you get four cents a quarter interest on that dollar. Now you can take that dollar, get four cents on it, compounded quarterly, at any downtown bank. So they can back some hot... What fucking world do you get four <laughs> cents? I was like, AP, was why is that even APY? Like yeah, in- yeah. In 69? Like, I don't know, but like, I, I don't know how to do this math in my head, but I mean, we're probably flirting with 5% APY on like a, a $1 deposit. It's pretty yeah. damn good. It's pretty good, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a no risk move, too. It's not like, it's not like you're getting like, you know, sheep and itsy coin or whatever. Yeah. yeah, right. Again, that's why, that's why you know, our parents are always. Also. Our parents are always saying we're, we're lazy and not, uh, you know, like, when I was your age, I owned three houses. Because <laughs> yeah, a house cost $15,000 and you made $32,000 a year. Come on. Like, yeah. Uh, and you're getting 5%. And you're getting 5% right, exactly. on the, yeah. yeah. waking up in the morning. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so after after they get five percent for waking up in the morning, apparently like an atom bomb blows them up or something. I what the hell what what happens here? I don't know, man. But he says something about how like a new tank and I don't oh, know no, no, no. He's he, I think what he's saying is that you give the money to the bank. And then the bank uses that to finance, like, the new war machinery, man. Uh, Like, you know, like, Mm. they're just going to use it to, like, kill people in Vietnam. Which, by the way, was also right. They totally were using that money to, like, finance killing Mm. people in Vietnam. But the delivery did not get that across too much. Maybe it was a context thing. Maybe at the time you'd have been like, yeah, man. Yeah. But also, the freaking gall that the people who were like, yeah, man, like, 
how are you going to, like, kill the Earth with your bombs and stuff are now like, well, listen, we can't tackle climate change. You understand what that's going to do to the economy? Like, right. my stock portfolio, <laughs> I'm about to retire right now. Like, yeah, people, these same right. exact people. I really, really, really hope that I don't get to that point where I'm just like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Like, listen, I'm going to squeeze 30 more years of livable air out of this planet, and then I'm going to die and fuck <laughs> and everybody else. Screw- like, yeah. Mm-hmm. You look and Wilbur Ross is the drummer on this. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good political pull. I like that one. Wilbur Ross. Wasn't he like the Commerce Secretary on the Trump? He was, yeah. yeah. And he was like 107. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and a billionaire who's just like, well, I can't, right, we can't change right. anything until I die because my life's right. pretty good. And I would not like my life to be marginally less marginally. amazing. <laughs> Unnoticeably less amazing. You make me feel better. A little more money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to look at those people and be like, ever since you had like $600 million, have you been happier? Has your right. life been better? Was like $700 million, like materially got, better than six? Then it got six? really good. Yeah. Like, I, I, I did the math once on really like, really what would the number be to just like walk away from work forever? You know, mm-hmm. I was, you know, because like you worry about money, right? Everybody does, right? And it's this, you know, it's this, uh, you know, it's just this big black box, right? It's this. Uh, the number's way lower than six hundred, seven hundred million dollars. That's what I'm trying to get at, right? Like it's it's not even close to eight, that. An eight million dollar windfall, and you're set for. Adam, that is my exact well. number. My exact number is $8 million. <laughs> I don't work for the rest of my goddamn yeah, life. Yeah, my, my And my kids awesome. will be fine, and my grandkids can fend for themselves because they right. will have parents who are already well set up. And if yes. you have well set up parents and you can't make your life something, then, yeah, it's probably on you. Like, I'm not looking for DuPont money. I don't care about that. Right. That's I, I've said it before. <laughs> I could never be a billionaire. I would, they'd be like, all right, your company, if we just work hard for the next five years, we could make this $200 million company a billion dollar company. I'd be like, but I have $200 million right now. <laughs> That's smacks of effort. Yeah, Why I'm, the hell I am, am I going <laughs> to? I should have been done months ago. What the hell? Why didn't you tell me this beforehand? Yeah, if you guys, could just, if you guys could just cash out like $80 yeah. million for me, uh, I'll just get out of your way. <laughs> I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this story. This is a, this is a really funny like Bay Area like you know acquisition money story which I thought was really hilarious there was a company that we were talking to that was like thinking about buying our company they didn't but they had bought another company in the area and they bought it for like 200 like 140 million dollars something like that not 240 it was 140 million dollars but the guy who founded the company basically got like 65 million dollars and he got the money and with the understanding that he was going to stay on and continue to shepherd this company through the acquisition and everything like that he got the money went to the bank withdrew two hundred thousand dollars threw his phone in the garbage and then disappeared <laughs> for like a good 16 weeks and it was just that completely awesome. off the grid and then showed yes. back up and was like yeah whatever man like come on yeah i'm i'm what here do? yeah i'm right. here all right, That's let's awesome. do it. And he definitely got dinged for it. Like he did not get the entire amount of money that he was supposed to get because of like the rocky transition. But he was like, I really like the difference between sixty million dollars and fifty-eight million dollars. I don't care. Like yeah, I'm I'll be totally fine. cool. Right. And I was like, but, I but that sixteen this guy. weeks it's off, so like awesome. that yeah. was, oh, you know, that, that that did me right. 
he basically just took like 200 grand in cash to Southeast Asia. It was just like, I am just cool for a long time. I don't give a shit about anything. I was like, yeah, that would be me. I would totally yeah. do that. Yeah. So back to the Flying Burrito Brothers. <laughs> yeah. So who I'm sure never yeah, made that so kind of money. Let's, let's cash out this gilded palace of sin. <laughs> Tom, let's kick it to you first. Where are you on the must-have? Must you listen to the Gilda's Palace of Sin before you die? Nah. Nah, man. Come on. <laughs> I listened to it this week, and I didn't hate this week, but I certainly wasn't like, man, there are these tunes that I am going to go back and listen to. I can't think of a single song on this album that I'm like, I'm going to go back and listen to that one. That yeah. one really got me. It wasn't offensive, but it wasn't captivating by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I feel bad that we just shat on this for the last hour and change. But to Tom's point, I actually started harboring a bit of animosity as I finished listening. I like to try to cram in a couple more listens the day of, of this recording. And I had a really hard time. I kept like bouncing around other other music that made me happy. So I'm going to steal a line that Tom had mentioned earlier in the podcast and say that these guys should have been called the sedentary burrito brothers. And, and uh, it's a no from Adam. Yeah. You know, unfortunately for the brothers, uh, I am with you guys. I don't think this is a bad record. I think we've listened to way worse records. And, you know, we just we just hit the 50 mark recently. I went back and browsed or what have I had voted pros and cons. And, you know, I, I basically decided rather than averaging down based on some maybe pretty okay records I gave a thumbs up to in the past. I want to I want to raise the bar. And and this record just doesn't right. make the bar. Just doesn't make the bar. Uh nice. I mean I don't know that there are 1001 records people must listen to, but this isn't one of them. This is a nice this is a nice record to turn on on a long drive, you know, through Joshua Tree. Uh, so. Oh, too soon, <laughs> Phil. Too soon. Oh, too, too soon. Yeah. <laughs> 53 no, years. No, no, it's it's 49 years too soon. Oh, yeah. all right, all right. You but you, you know, Phil, you make a good point though. This exercise should not be about trying to come up with a thousand and one albums that you must listen to before you die. It should be about saying that number is completely arbitrary and it's dumb. And so do you actually need to listen to this? Like, or you're just trying to fill out a thousand and one album list. And if you're just trying to fill out a thousand and one album list, yeah, sure. Put it on the list. It's not terrible. It's not offensive. But if you're asking me if my like valuable time on this planet should be spent on this album, no, it definitely shouldn't. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you've listened to Eagles, Grateful Dead, the Birds, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Emmy Lou Harris, early yeah. Wilco, <laughs> you know, like I keep yeah. going like yeah. this, right? Like, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of other places where I think, uh, you know, Graham Parsons' vision is realized. Uh, I think the the work is great. I just think this record is a bit of a snooze. Uh, so I think that's it. We've got a no. You do not need to listen to the Gilded Palace of Sin before you die. Before we wrap it up for this week, I do know that we need to select another record for next week. Well, we should also uh, stress that uh, if you are just the biggest Flying Burrito Brothers fan, you just love them. You cannot get enough 
of this airborne Mexican dish, then you should be <laughs> contacting us at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com, 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com to let us know why we are off the mark. I'm going to guess that we are currently being flooded with email as I speak. Oh, yeah. I do and, think uh, that this is a hip sound now, so I wouldn't be surprised if somebody tells us that, you know, we should. We're out of our minds. I would love it. Great. Yeah. You know, to be clear, about, this uh, is about the Flying Burrito Brothers, not burritos. We don't want any emails about burritos. <laughs> yes. Burritos are amazing. Although I'm getting hungry. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Then. And uh, yeah, you know, tell a friend about how much you like us. Or give us a review, five stars only, you bastards. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's talk about next week. I got I got the Albinator. I've been. Uh, oh, I'm excited. It's had it's had a, a week or two of traveling around. I know we had to pass it over to Rob for a little bit. Yeah, so we are we're gonna crank this bad boy off. We're gonna shake the cobwebs off of the Albinator and see what we have in place next week. So, everybody ready for their homework assignment? Drum roll, please. Next week, we will be listening to, all right, uh, Brilliant Corners by Thelonious Monk. Talk all about right. a hip sound. Sure. Just yeah. the name Thelonious. Like, I contemplated naming my son Thelonious. Ah, <laughs> oh, nice, nice. I know of Thelonious Monk. I, I, I'm sure there's a couple, you know, of the more well-known tunes, but I've never listened to an album End to end. This will this will be a fun one cool. for you, Adam, because uh, I think his sense of harmony is uh, a little atypical, right? But it, it's yeah. consistent, so it's his sense of harmony, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, and just a really extremely tasteful piano player. Oh yeah, yeah. Just and he's just absolutely fantastic. Feel. Yeah, good point. That's an important feel detail. The entire yeah, time. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Monk's Dream. I have actually listened to a full album by Thelonious Monk. I have not listened so to Brilliant I, Corners, but uh, nor have I. I yeah, so there's one called Monk's Dream that I've listened to. But oh, okay, this is going to be cool. I feel like uh, Thelonious Monk is the typical. I found a jazz record in some bargain bin and I bought it because I think Thelonious Monk is cool. Um, I have a couple of those albums. I couldn't tell you what they are, but I'm just like, ah, it's a Thelonious Monk album. It can't be terrible. Got to pick it up. I get right. throw it on during dinner, and nobody's complaining about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the record called again? Brilliant, Brilliant Corners. Corners. Yeah. See who's on this bad boy before we. For check a second, out. I thought it was uh, Brighten the Corners. Yeah. And I was like, oh, is there, there's a Pavement album on here? Because uh, yeah. I actually am kind of a huge baby man. Well, it's got, in addition to Son, uh, Thelonious Monk on piano, it's going to have Sonny Rollins on tenor sax and Max Ooh. Roach on drums. Oh, so, it's got I, Max Roach on drums. Hell yeah, yeah. It's probably going to rip. It's probably going to be, I mean, why wouldn't it rip? It's got, it's a Thelonious Monk record. It's got three well-known jazz musicians who have all had, like, successful solo careers and albums. I'm pretty excited for this. This is going to be awesome. Excellent. Until next time, I've been Phil. I'm Tom. And I'm Adam. Boosh.
character, the, the, the narrator, is walking down the street, right? He's walking down the street and he, he, he sees a, a little hippie boy, right? Who may be on the weed or LSD or something. And then they, they become, they don't become friends, but they, they, they have a conversation, a brief conversation that is started by the hippie boy. Where he tells him that, as I understood it, he is carrying the urn of a dead child. 